when we just sang that song, are we being honest? We pray, you can have this world, but give me Jesus. You being honest? I hope so. Because the Lord wants us to put him first. No matter what the world says, no matter what the world offers, he wants to be first. And so let's go to him now in prayer and dedicate ourselves to him. And I uh, just got a text or just got a message from, from David over in Bangladesh. And uh, times are tough there, very tough. Food is getting very scarce. And the celebration called Ramadan is coming. And uh, this is where, you know, the Muslims, they do a whole lot of praying and fasting and, and those kinds of things to kind of uh, show that they are dedicated to their God. And so we need to pray that God, the true and living God, the only God there is, and, and shows up in dreams and visions to help the Muslims to understand who the true and living God is. Allah is not the true and living God. Muhammad is not a true prophet. He's a false prophet. And so we need to pray that God would, would intervene, that God would, would just sweep over that country in a great and mighty way. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful for you. You are the Almighty One. You are the one, Lord, who knows everything there is to know about everything. Lord, we know that you are not just here at Grace United Family Church. You are everywhere at once. Your fullness is everywhere. Lord, we pray for our brother David in Bangladesh. We pray for all the believers there in Bangladesh as well. Lord, as food is getting scarce, I pray, Father, that you would provide. Lord, you own the cattle on the thousand hills and you own the, you own the thousand hills besides. So, Lord, I pray that you would help them, help our brothers, help your sons and daughters, Lord. I pray, Father, that during this season of Ramadan, not just in Bangladesh, but all around the world, who uh, people who call themselves Muslims, I pray, Lord Jesus, that in your compassion, that in your mercy, in your grace, that you would show up, you would send your angels, you would help them to understand, Lord, who you really are. Lord, you are not just a prophet. You are the risen Son of God. You are God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, who came to die for them and us and rise again that we might be forgiven, that we might avoid the wrath of God that's coming. So, Lord, help them understand. Open their eyes, I pray. And, Father, now I pray that you'd help us to open our eyes as we understand and to try to understand this passage of Scripture. Lord, this is a difficult passage. Lord, as, uh, as Paul calls out the false teachers, help us, Lord, to understand how much false teaching is, is in our world. Help us to be committed to the truth. And we'll give you thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a private school in Manhattan warns against sex-based terms because they make assumptions about people. Now, this school is a K-12 school. Grace Church School explained in this inclusive language guide that the school can, quote, do more than ban hateful language. We can use language to create welcoming and inclusive spaces. Rather than using words mom and dad to describe a child's parents, the guide recommends saying grown-ups or folks or family. Isn't it nice? It even warns against using the word parents, though the guide itself uses that word. It also discourages using the words boys and girls. In lieu of those titles, one should say people or folks 
or friends, readers, mathematicians. Instead of using a boy-girl pattern to line students up, you know how that is when you were in school? Teachers should group by types of shoes or by alphabetical order. Families are formed and structured in many ways, the guide states. At Grace School, we use inclusive language that reflects this diversity. The guide also references gender-bred person. Every time I see this, I laugh, but gender-bred person is a real thing. It is, it is horrendous. It really is. It offers a progressive understanding of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, and sex characteristics. This is in a user's guide, a, a parent's guide in a religious school. The school released a statement this week defending its decision to promote, quote, the inclusive language guide in claiming to be a victim of a culture war storm. We know that policing language demonstrates more concern for getting a community to use the right words than for cultivating a sense of belonging for its members, said head of school George Davison. This is not how we do things at Grace, and that's why our inclusive language guide does not ban any words. At Grace, we understand the power of language to both include and to cause alienation. We also know that it is our job to give community members resources to allow them to make informed and generous choices. And he went on to say that the guide is designed to help adults in the community find words to affirm and unite. So if the boorish cancel culture press wants to condemn us as a newly dubbed woke no-ho school of politeness, dignity, and respect, then I embrace it, and I hope you will too, Davidson says. Well, this story highlights the power of cancel culture and political correctness, not only in our culture, but seemingly everywhere in the world now. This story reported loud and clear that this religious school has buckled under the power of PC even claiming that they are victims of the culture war. But, you know, I find it refreshing when Christians live out the power and the courage of their convictions, don't you? Unlike these guys, Grace Church School. Those who live out their convictions may pay a price, but they will not be silenced. Like maybe you've heard the, uh, the, the issue in, in Canada, uh, Pastor Coates, He's sitting in jail right now because he refused to go along with the mandate severely limiting the number of people who can come and worship at the church due to COVID issues. And you know, the Lord Jesus wasn't silent either. And politically speaking, the price he paid for speaking out was his life for bearing witness to the truth. He even said this when he stood before Pilate. He said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Now, our passage for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to chapter 7, verse 1, we're also going to see the Apostle Paul speaking truth and being a witness to the truth. He bore witness to the truth regarding two groups of people, the Corinthians and the false teachers. Earlier in this chapter, we saw Paul making an urgent appeal to the Corinthians. But again, let me give you a little backstory to to catch us up a little bit here. Several years prior to this appeal that Paul made in 2 Corinthians 6, 
He came to Corinth and he proclaimed the gospel, Christ crucified. And through the power of God's Holy Spirit, a church was born. After spending about 18 months there, training these new disciples of Jesus in the ways of the Lord, he left there and he proclaimed the gospel in other places in the empire. But they were not far from Paul's mind, the Corinthians, and they certainly were in his heart. But he caught wind of some people who were trying to, uh, they're giving their level best to try to pull the Corinthians away from the truth of the gospel. Now, these were false teachers, and they brought a false gospel to them. And they're having such a strong effect on them that they came to the crossroads of their spiritual experience. And they had to answer a question. Which direction should we go? Should we go with the false teachers and all that they offered? Or would they stay with the truth of the gospel of Christ that Paul preached? Now, earlier in this chapter, we heard Paul telling the Corinthians, don't receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't walk away from Jesus. In Him alone, there is salvation. And last week, if you remember, Paul gave a, the Corinthians a massive list of his character qualities and his experiences, almost as if he and his friends were, were submitting a resume to the Corinthians as far as who would be the most qualified to lead them spiritually. Now, as we discovered, Paul and company stood head and shoulders above what the false teachers were and what they offered. And once again, Paul and even the Lord himself here were in an all-out spiritual battle to win back the hearts and the minds of the Corinthians. Today, we're going to see Paul throw aside his pleading with the Corinthians. We're going to see him pull out of his arsenal weaponry suitable for a frontal spiritual attack. And with the help of God's Spirit, Paul was determined to win this war. So in our passage, we're going to see Paul lob one verbal assault, one verbal missile after another to the false teachers. And then we're going to see Paul vigorously remind the Corinthians of who they are in Christ. Implicitly, he's telling them, be reconciled to God. Come back to Him. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. And then we will see as well the Lord Himself calling the Corinthians to return to Him and away from the false teachers and the false gospel, a gospel that does not save. So, what are Paul's weapons? The first one directed at the false teachers was exposure. Paul was going to expose these teachers for exactly who they were and what their character was in verses 14 to 16. The second weapon that Paul used in in this was a reminder. This weapon is a reminder of what the Corinthians were and who the Corinthians were. And what a powerful weapon this is, a reminder. See, the enemy of our souls will do anything to distract us and divert our attention away from who God says we are. We need to know our identity in Christ. That's a weapon. Because when we don't understand who we are or we forget who we are, Satan then can come in and move in with withering attacks, and we're left vulnerable. And so Paul drives home into the hearts of his beloved Corinthian brothers and sisters exactly who they are, and we're going to see this in verses 17 and 18. And then finally, Paul, the ever-practical Christian worker, tells the Corinthians to be doers and hearers 
of the truth in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. So let's read now 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 to 16. Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Let Paul's words sink in here for a second. What labels did Paul use to expose these false teachers? See, Paul here was not exactly loving, was he? And if he were here today, he would probably get canceled. And unfortunately, by some churches even. But no matter whether he was back in the first century, if he was able to transport himself into the 21st century, it would not matter. Paul would not be stopped. So let's walk through the labels Paul uses against these false teachers. And the first one is unbelievers. He says, don't be, don't be unequally yoked with them. Don't partner yourself with these unbelievers. Those who have not placed their faith in the crucified, resurrected Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, we would say these unbelievers, they need to get saved in our, in our vernacular. They're on their way to a Christless eternity in hell. But the Corinthians were believers, and Paul said, don't be unequally yoked together with them. And by the way, the context here is specifically about and yoking yourself together with unbelieving false teachers. But this application can apply to any kind of a relationship where there is an official close association. And Paul says, don't go there. Don't partner with unbelievers to include marital relationships. Maybe you've heard the term missionary dating, you know, if you're single. You know, as a believer, you, you meet somebody and you say, you know, that person's not a Christian, but you know what? I think I can win them to the Lord. That's missionary dating. That does not work. Very, very seldom, I should say. And there's even, you know, Christians saying, you know what? I know this person is not a Christian, but I'm going to marry this person anyway. I'm going to win them to Christ over the course of my marriage. Guess what? That hardly works either. Very seldom does it ever. And so Paul is saying here, listen, don't do this. You're only begging for trouble. Christians are only allowed to marry Christians. Second label Paul pinned on the false teachers was those who practice lawlessness. Apparently, the view of the false teachers was anything goes, especially in the moral realm. See, they believed that they were forgiven so they can do anything that they wanted. Well, Jesus has something to say about that. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, we hear from Jesus' own lips, accurately written down by Matthew, which ought to deeply frighten anyone who refuses to come by the way of Jesus, to submit their ways to him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Paul called these false teachers workers of lawlessness and are excluded from the kingdom of heaven. They are not Christians. The third charge Paul levied on the false teachers was they lived in moral darkness without God. And Paul said earlier in this letter that God has shown in the hearts of those who have the truth to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has not shown the false teachers the light of the knowledge of God in their hearts. Again, they're living in moral darkness. They're separated from God. And now devastating charge number four. Paul identifies the false teachers as those who are in league, in association with Belial. But what's Belial? Well, it's another name for Satan himself. Now, this is about as opposite as they could get from Christ. Would you agree? This name literally means worthless. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Christ, who is all worthy, pitted against the devil, who Paul described as worthless. The false teachers were in league with Belial. The, Christ, the Corinthians were in league with Jesus. Vast difference between the two. And then as Paul is driving home the point, as though he is, he labels the false teachers as unbelievers a second time, almost like bookends. He starts off by describing them as unbelievers. He finishes up this description of them as unbelievers as well. What a character sketch. These people, though, they are image bearers of God. But they are thoroughly wicked. They were unworthy of following. But they were so enticing to the Corinthians. But how could that be? Why would anybody want to follow people like that? Why would anybody at any time be tempted to follow people like they, like Paul had just described? Well, think of the Garden of Eden. Here, even here, Eve was in innocence, and what did she do? She followed and she listened to the lie of the serpent, and was deceived, and both Adam and Eve fell into sin. Think of the satanic spirit influencing religions then and now, communicating to their high priests, to their leaders, that their followers must sacrifice their children. The high priests in the temples called Planned Parenthood, for example, call out in the name of freedom of choice, give me your unborn children. You know you don't want them. I will take them. I'm going somewhere with this. I recently read an article published by One News Now about a certain religious group which desires to make actual abortion procedures part of their child sacrifice rituals under the guise of freedom of religion. The group? The Satanic Temple. They are suing the state of Texas to make this happen. Right now, it's going on in the courts. This is just one example of satanically motivated religious practices that people fall for all over the world and has been doing it. We've been doing it forever, for a long, long time, I should say. But let me mention for you a few practices in our world which don't agree with Holy Scripture. 
that most of us would agree to what I'm about to say, the list I'm about ready to, to, to run down, it is difficult to hear. There are billions of people right now created in the, in the image of God that are following these things and following these practices. They've committed themselves to these spiritual ways, but they're on their way to a Christless eternity. Every person caught up in these religious and, the, and, these, and these practices, again, valuable image bearers of God. Even the leaders are image bearers of God. And it gives me no pleasure to go down this list. But all those who are fully committed to these practices will die condemned. Every person in these religions or no religion at all are going to stand before the one who has all authority, the one who died and rose again so that they and we can avoid the wrath of God that's coming. If only on this side of the grave they would repent and believe the gospel. In our day, there are cults like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses with their millions of followers. World religions like Hinduism and Islam and Roman Catholicism with all the baggage. Now, let me emphasize baggage because there are many born-again Catholics, but those who are full-blown, thoroughly, you know, dyed-in-the-wool, you know, Roman Catholics with all that baggage, they're involved in, in non-Christian religion, basically. How about non-Messianic Judaism? All these people put together make up multiplied billions of people on this planet. And add to that the legalism in many churches where people are trying to, by rule-keeping, trying to make themselves right with holy God. And on the other side, many who practice sinful lifestyles and call that freedom, add it all up. And Jesus did say, few there be that find the way to eternal life. My friends, you see how serious this is. Billions of people are dying right now. They're on their way to a Christless eternity in hell. The enemy does his level best to distract and and avert attention away from the need for all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel of Christ. The false teachers in Paul's day were no different than ours. But doubtless, there are a whole lot more today than there were back then. Why? Because there are more people today than there were back then. But having seen Paul now use his first weapon of exposing these false teachers with devastating force, let's now turn our attention to see how the apostle uses his second weapon, that of a reminder of the Corinthians' identity in Christ. Corinthians, who are you in Christ? Let's read verses 16 to 18. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So who are the Corinthians? Who are they? Let's paint a picture. 
First, they have a living relationship with the living God, the only God that there is. They're in this relationship, this environment, as Paul describes here, is the description of that of a temple. But why temple? See, in terms of relationship, this is where God dwells. Now, there are many statements in Scripture which say that God is not limited by time or by place. Indeed, God is everywhere at once. Isn't that true? And God is so huge and so big and so, so infinite that the earth is His footstool. Here's what God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66.1. He says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? So when we're talking here about temple, we're not talking about a, a, just a very localized place for God. We're talking here of relationship. God is dwelling among his people and we are described as a temple. All of us together, by the way, not each individual, all of us together. That's what the Corinthians were and all of us who are members of the body of Christ. Well, let's continue the picture of God's people, particularly the Corinthians, being a temple for the Lord, and not only in terms of God dwelling among His people, but also now in terms of holiness, holiness. What does that word holy mean? It means different, it means separate, it means set apart, it means special. Aren't you just special? Isn't that great? We're all special. God says we're special if we're in Christ. All God's people are to live in a holy, exclusive relationship with God and with His people. He described this as a family, as sons and daughters in relationship with Heavenly Father. The Corinthians were in the family of God. They had a living relationship with the living God. But they stood on the brink of throwing it away. Remember, they're at the crossroads. Are we going to follow the false teachers? Are we going to follow the true and living God in His ways? They were God's people, but they were that close to throwing it away and walking out the door. And Paul reminds them, let's remember who we are, Corinthians. I am part of that temple, and you are as well. God has established a covenant with us, and this covenant is established. The foundation of this covenant is the blood of Jesus. And because we are God's people, now we are to live like God's people. Indeed, the Corinthians and our relationship with God as, is as sons and daughters. Let me remind us of the culture of the first century and how family members treated their fathers. And regardless of how we see family, regardless of how we think about our own fathers, whether we had a good father or not, or or even a father at all. Some of us may not even know our fathers. Back then, shame avoidance was the number one priority in the family. Children would rather die, literally, than bring shame on their father. And Paul reflects this kind of thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And the way that we as children of God are to avoid shame in our relationship with the Heavenly Father, our perfect Heavenly Father, is that we, His children, imitate Him. Literally, we are to mimic our Heavenly Father. On the basis of a genuine love relationship with the Father, God, we are to live our lives in sacrificial love for others. 
See, we're to die to ourselves, meaning we're to say no to our own desires, and we're to say yes to the needs of others, because this is what our elder brother, Jesus, did for us. He gave himself up for us, and God, or Paul calls this a fragrant offering and a sacrifice in verse 2, Ephesians 5. Then in verse 3 of Ephesians 5, Paul gives the Ephesian Christians further instruction about what it means to mimic their heavenly father. Their moral behavior is what he now addresses. In short, Paul says, because of who you are, or more appropriately, because of whose you are, live the way God tells you and do it gratefully so you don't bring shame and and dishonor to your heavenly father. We remember who we are, and then we are to do as we're told, (laughs) according to Scripture, according to what God would have us do, for His glory, for His honor. Remember what Jesus says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Well, it was not lost on God, the Father, what the Corinthians were up against. See, the false teachers were strong in their satanic enticement to win them. God now, through Paul, told them to repent. Let's look at verse 17. He says, therefore, because you're my sons and daughters, you're my children, he says, therefore, go up from their midst. Separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. Paul quotes several passages of Scripture here, almost like in a mashup, just like one part of Scripture after another. Building his case so that the Corinthians know that God was telling them to turn away from the false teachers. Go out from their midst. Be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing. Notice what Paul said through, God said through Paul in describing the false teachers. He calls them unclean. He implies that the false teachers were defiling the Corinthians. However, the Corinthians were not victims. It was they who put themselves in the position to be influenced by these false teachers. That's why God commands his people to repent, to turn around, to turn away from their teaching, to separate themselves from the false teachers and return to God. And should they repent, what would God do? He'll welcome them back as sons and daughters. And what I'm saying here is welcome them back into fellowship. They will again bring honor to the Father when they do this. Their repentance from the false teachers will then prove that they really are sons and daughters of God. I'm reminded of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, our faith in Christ and our obedience really do, to get, really do go together. He says, quote, only the one who believes obeys. And conversely, only the one who obeys believes. They both go together. So what do we have so far? Paul devastates the false teachers. He calls the Corinthians to live like sons and daughters that God declares them to be that they are. And now in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul gives strong encouragement to press on in their walk with the Lord. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. As children of God, Paul gives them a word of encouragement and a command. 
We can call these promises impurity. But there's a purpose for all of this. Let's walk through this. First, the promises. Corinthians, you are sons and daughters of God. When you repent, you get welcomed back into the fellowship and the family. The Lord is gracious. He's slow to anger, and He abounds in loving kindness. Literally, the word is loyal to the covenant. God is loyal to His promises to us. Now, it's amazing to me, personal testimony, how gracious and how forgiving God is to me. And I'm sure that every one of us could say the same thing. We could probably spend the next couple of days in here just standing up and saying how good and how gracious God has been to every one of us. But the bottom line is simply this. God will receive us back as we come back to Him in the fellowship. Corinthians, return to the Lord so He can bless you. See, God does not break His promise. And that is such good news, not just for them, but for us as well. And so because God has given His people His welcome home promises, what is to be their response? In a word, bring honor to the Father. In a word, purity is the name of the game. God's people are to cleanse themselves. We are to cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. Notice what I said for emphasis. We are to cleanse ourselves. The Corinthians were to cleanse themselves of every defilement of body and spirit. How can anybody do that? We hear over and over again, we can't clean ourselves up. But Paul says right here that we're supposed to. Well, for the past few days, Kitty and I have been hard at work at our house, painting our front room, you know, and there's a lot of varnished wood in our, in our front room, and we decided that we would paint over it, you know. Um, but this required the use of a lot of oil-based primer. But silly me, I did not use glove. <laughs> and the smell of the primer was horrid. It was terrible. It was bad stuff. It was a bad experience. And my hands were eventually covered with blue primer. So, what to do about that? I had to remove it because if I kept it on my hands, what would happen to everything I touched? It would defile it, including I go to bed, all over the sheets, right? Not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. So, what do I do? What did I do? So, you can see my hands are not blue. They're great. It took a lot of soap. It took a lot of uh, this waterless cleaner and a lot of scrubbing. And after a time, I was able to remove the primer. Guess what I did the next time? I used gloves. <laughs> but how did I remove it? I couldn't remove it. It was the cleanser that removed the primer. The cleanser did this. In the same way, we are called to apply the cleanser that God has given to our souls. Cleanse our souls. How do we do this? There are two things, repentance and confession. That's the cleanser. We apply it, and God cleanses. And, and we know this in 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9 is reserved for those in the family of God. And it goes like this. Recite it if you know it. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we apply as we confess 
He forgives over and over again. How many times does he do it? Second chance, third chance? How about as many chances as it takes, right? But after we have confessed our sins and we repented of them, then we adopt the attitude that Paul had. In, first, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I forget the things that lie behind and I press on to what lies ahead. Now, my early Christian experience, a bunch of us young believers, you know, we were holding each other accountable and things like that. And we would always focus in or oftentimes focus in on a statement, on a phrase. And we called it fess and press. Confess my sins, press on. Confess my sins, press on. And why did we do that? It's, it's pretty common among Christians, isn't it? How many times do we beat ourselves up over our sin even after we've confessed and after we've repented? Can I get a witness on that one? We do, don't we? Because sin is so heinous to us and to our Heavenly Father. It's like, how in the world can I do this? And I beat myself up over and over again. Well, what do we do? Gloriously, it ought to be a very humbling thing to us that Christ took how much of our punishment? All of it. If Christ took all of our punishment, how much punishment do we have to bear? None of it. It's not being flippant when we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, I've blown it. I am sorry. I confess my sin. I leave it at the cross. And then we go about our way rejoicing over what Jesus has done for us. We're not being flippant when we do that, and we don't have to beat ourselves up. And so what do we do? We confess our sin, and we press on. We press on to maturity. Because every time that we don't, every time we come back and beat ourselves up, it's almost as if the the enemy is holding us back. We want to walk in freedom, so we confess our sins and we press on. Finally, what is the purpose that Paul proclaimed to the Corinthians regarding the cleansing of themselves and us as well, of all defilement of body and soul? It is to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness. And what's up with that? Simply put, all of us who are in God's family through repentance and faith in the gospel of Christ are continually training themselves or training ourselves for godliness as we look forward to evaluation day. And what's evaluation day? Day of judgment. We practice holiness by being doers of God's word and not just hearers. How many of us think that, okay, I know this word and I've read it, but am I doing it? No, I'm not. So am I really knowing his word? No. We're to be hearers and doers of his word. Remember what Scripture is designed for. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given, is breathed out by God, and is profitable for four things. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. These four things. Now, this statement tells us something very valuable. First of all, it teaches us the way of the Lord, the way of righteousness. Second, it reproves us. It shows us when we've gotten off the path of righteousness. Third, it corrects us. It tells us how to get back onto the path of righteousness. And fourthly, it tells us how to get farther down the path of righteousness. See a pattern here? In short, God's Word helps us to train ourselves for godliness. 
Even as Paul tells us the Philippians, he says, we are to work out our salvation, exercise our salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in us to do and to will to do according to his good pleasure. Okay? So what? Why are we as Christians to perfect holiness? The answer, it is found in the last phrase of this passage. Holiness in the fear of God, in the fear of the Lord. Now, where have we heard that statement before? The fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Here's what he says. Paul says he makes it the aim of his life to be pleasing of the Lord to the Lord on this side of eternity. Why? Because all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one of us will receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, we practice righteousness to get ready for the day that we stand before the Lord. Pretty sobering, isn't it? All of us are going to be there. The books are going to be open, the books of our works, and the book of life will be opened as well. All of us will be judged, and we will receive what is due for what we have done in our body, whether good or evil. This is what Paul tells us. This is God's inspired word to us. And the book of life will be opened as well. Whether or not one's name is written in that book will determine whether or not one will go into eternal life with the Lord or will be separated from the Lord to eternal death, unending suffering in eternal fire. The issue is, is your name written in the book? That's the issue. Hear these horrifying words in Revelation 20:15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Absolutely horrifying words. So I implore you, in this room, those tuning in, Facebook Live, whoever, wherever, if you're not absolutely certain that your name is written in the book of life, make certain. Because we're not promised even tomorrow. We've got to make sure our names are written in that book. And how do we make certain? Jesus gives us the way because he is the way. We repent. We turn from our sin. We recognize that we are sinners in rebellion against the Lord. We turn from that sin. We say, God, I am done with that. And I have a desire to turn away because you have convicted me of my sin. And then what do we do? We trust our souls to Jesus Christ, the second person of the blessed Trinity. He came to earth through a virgin named Mary. He lived a perfect life. He suffered on the cross in our place. He took all of our sin, yours and mine, upon himself, and he died for us. He said it's finished, paid in full, all of our sin debt, paid in full. He was buried. He rose again three days later. He appeared to his disciples. He ascended up to heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for his people right now. One day he's coming back. He's coming back soon, and we know this. He's coming back, and he's going to rule and reign here on earth. And at the end of a thousand years, his, his rule and reign, we're going to stand before him on that day. 
and will give an account. And he has the authority to say, enter into the joy of your Lord or depart from me, for I never knew you. So in the immediate, in the here and now, what do we take away from this passage of Scripture? Two things. First, don't believe everything you hear in the world. That ought to be a no-brainer. But don't believe everything you hear. Basically, believe nothing in this world, right? I mean, how many, how many websites, how many news outlets give the truth? How about basically zero? We all have a bias, don't we? Only believe what God's Word says. And as Christians, we cannot train ourselves for godliness if we are uncritically watching stuff on the tube or mindlessly listening to podcasts, even of our favorite music, even if it's labeled as Christian. Remember the false teachers. They came under the guise of their own religious system and their own religious practices. The bottom line here is, Know the Word of God and measure everything you hear and read and see by it. If you need to know how to study, need to know how to meditate, need to know how to take the Word in in a way that is accurate and pleasing to the Lord, if you don't know how to do that, let me know. I can help you on this. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, and 12. Luke tells us about these guys. He says, These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. As a result, many believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. These Bereans did not take what Paul said at face value. They heard, but they checked it out. Just because he said it, they didn't believe it. Just because they didn't take his word for it. They checked in the Scripture. And again, they made sure that the plain teaching of Scripture matched up with what Paul said. If Paul said something that was not, guess what they did with Paul's words? Threw it out. They kept the Word of God. And we need to do the same. And finally, let's face it. There's a storm coming. There's a shaking coming in our world. It may not shake tonight, may not shake tomorrow, may not shake next month. It may not shake for five years. It may even be longer than that. But Jesus himself promised it would happen. In fact, if it doesn't happen, guess what Jesus is? He's a liar. And I'm not the one to say that. Jesus made the prediction there is going to be a great tribulation such as the world has never seen before. We heard about the flood and how devastating the flood was all over the world. That's nothing compared to what is coming. This is what Jesus said. In fact, he said, if the Son of Man had not come, would not come and shorten those days, nobody would survive. It's going to get really, really bad and terrible. But at the right time, the Lord will return and he will destroy his enemies. He will stop the tribulation. He will bring it to a grinding halt. He will save his people. He will destroy his enemies. He will set up his throne. And I cannot wait for that day. Can you? In the meantime, let's get ready. 
I mentioned it earlier. We are to be hearers of God's Word and doers of God's Word. For it is in the doing of God's Word that prepares us for the coming storms in this life and in the next one when we stand before Him. Let me give you the words of our Lord in conclusion of His most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, but not in Matthew 7, but in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49. He says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's an oxymoron, isn't it? Everyone who hears, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who took shortcuts. He built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell. And the ruin of that house was great. What's the house here? It's our lives. We've got to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus. And so when we as His disciples diligently apply God's Word, two things happen. First, we are prepared for the storms of life which are here now and will come even in more rapid-fire succession and even more intensely as the time goes by. And second we will have a less traumatic time at the judgment seat of Christ if we are living the life now. But let's leave this message on a good note. Let's remember Christ's words that He spoke to His men the night before He went to the cross. He was telling them He was going to die. He was telling them it's going to get rough. He was telling them, you're going to fall away from Me. But then He gave them these things. Let's take comfort in these words. In John 16, 31 to 33, he says, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Do you now believe? After all this time, finally you get it. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Imagine what Jesus is going through here at this point. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. As, as, as traumatic as it was for Jesus, he's still thinking about his disciples. You may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. In the midst of the tough choices we all must make to follow Jesus day by day, let's take advantage of the peace that he alone offers. Paul attacked the false teachers because he loved his brothers and sisters. Let's join in the battle, dying to ourselves at every crossroad in our followership of the Lord Jesus. Let's promote the truth of who we are because we loyally follow Him, because we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, you want us to tell the truth. Lord Jesus, you did not flinch at speaking the truth. You were the most real person who ever lived. 
It did not matter to you what people thought. It did not matter to you how people would respond. Lord Jesus, you had one thing on your mind and one thing on your lips, which was to tell the truth about who the Father is, to tell the truth about who we are, tell the truth about your world, the world that that was spoken into existence by a word. Because you told the truth, Lord. People hated you for it. Because you told the truth, people didn't accept you. Because you told the truth, you died, you were crucified. But Father, we thank you. We praise you because that didn't go to waste. In fact, that was your plan from the beginning. You knew what was going to happen. At the right time, Father, you sent your son that he might die for us in our place, pay for all of our sin. And because we, by by your spirit, who convicted us of our sin, because we turned in repentance and faith to you, Lord Jesus, because we've embraced you as our Lord and our Savior, you've commanded us to follow you. Not perfectly, because we can never perfectly follow you, but loyally. Lord, you told us that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. Help us, Lord, to live in, and bask in the, just the freedom that we have in forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to joyfully serve you because we love you, because you loved us first. So, Lord, I pray that you'll, you'll, seal, you'll seal this message to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to separate ourselves from the world, from all defilement, cleansing ourselves because we love you, Lord. You know, I pray, Father, as we turn our attention to the singing and to the giving, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do these things as acts of worship because you alone deserve it. We'll thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.